Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Alcock. And I'm his sidekick, Coffee Brown. And you might have heard a new music intro. Music is courtesy of Greg Bryant of UCLA, where he is not only a musician, but an evolutionary psychologist and an esteemed scientist. I will link to his website and his music. Uh, He is a polymath and a really interesting guy. So check out Greg Bryant. I quite like that music, actually. It seemed highly evolved to me. Highly evolved. I thought we were going to talk a little bit about teaching. In particular, Coffee Brown has made his career as an educator, in addition to being a clinician in emergency medicine. He's faculty here at the EMS Academy, Emergency Medicine Services Academy, and he has a pretty interesting career. Yeah, well, um, in the same way that your two, I think, vocations are evolution and emergency medicine, my two strongest interests are physiology and how we learn. So I would say pedagogy. Pedagogy is how we teach. How we learn is slightly different. And it began when I was a student thinking, well, how can I learn more efficiently and how can I learn better? And quite a lot of what I know now, I hadn't worked out by the time I went to medical school. So I can actually teach better study hygiene than I had when I was in medical school. It started and and it broadened. It turned out that it became really cognitive neuroscience. How does our software and our hardware relate? How do we apprehend the world? We view the world through all kinds of filters. So we both look at a hammer on the floor and Joe the homicidal maniac says, oh, I could kill somebody with that. And I'm currently doing a lot of home improvement stuff. So I'm thinking, oh, I can use the claw to get those nails out of the old pieces of wood I'm salvaging. And that's a different Joe, by the way. (laughs) Actually, Joe, the evolutionary psychologist, would look at that and go, I wonder what a stone tool user would make of this. Would he recognize that it's also a hammer? But the point is, it means something drastically different to us, even though it's about as simple of an object as you can imagine. So the question of how we apprehend the world gets into our biases, our interest, our engagement, what parts of our brain are stimulated by what kinds of input, it gets really complex really fast, which made it more and more interesting to me. Why don't we back up a little bit and just tell us about how you think you got here and just about your biography. Oh, well... We share, we share uh, roots in Arizona. That's kind of cool, actually. Nobody's ever asked about this before. So when I was about 12, for no reason that I'm aware of, my parents started pimping me out to the neighbors as a tutor for their kids. And I made money at it. It was like being a 12-year-old babysitter, except I was a 12-year-old tutor, right? Uh And I wound up working often 20 hours a week or more uh, while I was still in grade school. And so I started trying to get better at it. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing at first. I was just guessing. But teaching goes back way back for you. All the way back to then. And, And I had a reason right from the very beginning to try to get good at it. And although I've done construction and Navy and, of course, a physician for, you know, worked in the emergency room for 20 years and things like that, still I kept looping back around to education. So all my life I've never really stopped teaching and I've never stopped feeling responsible for getting better at it. And you grew up in Tucson? Yep, Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, and I grew up in Tempe. Here's the thing, if you're from Tucson, you think you have some bragging rights. Oh my God, it was so hot yesterday. It was 110. And the people in Phoenix will always go, Oh, you're so lucky. We had 120. So there's a little one-upmanship But that's rivalry. a pretty good reason to be in Tucson as opposed to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, it's so much cooler. <laughs> well, I remember as a kid visiting 
family friends down in Tucson and liking how some of the homes up in the foothills had natural vegetation and big boulders and a cool aesthetic to them. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why I like Albuquerque. It has some similarities. At the time that I was a child, Tucson was less urbanized. Mm -hmm. There were so many saguaros that it wasn't until later I realized that they're fairly rare. Lots right. of other... In fact, one of the things I've learned about Tucson is that the biome around there, the Sonora Desert biome, is as exotic as the Galapagos, and I think might be the best evolved desert in the world, though it's actually one of the younger ones. It has, it has some <coughs> very unique features that... Uh, it's really the subject of my dad's career. He's written a whole bunch of books about the oh, Sonoran Desert. Yeah. And it is a special place. It's funny, though, when you grow up in such a place and you think of it as being normal, you don't realize how special it is. I do see the beauty of it still. I, I still love being in the desert. And when I say best evolved, what I mean is that the, the biodensity of it is high relative to its rainfall. Right. If you go down to uh, Organ Pipe National Monument, of course now it's on the border and it has all those border issues, but as a place of massive biodiversity, it's really spectacular. There are both the organ pipe cacti, saguaro cactus, and it's, it's lush in monsoon season. And there are, there are trees and it's green, and there are hundreds of different species of plants and animals. There's a wonderful book I would highly recommend to anybody, written a long time ago, so a lot of listeners may not have heard of Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. Now, ultimately, he got his arm twisted into writing several sequels. I'm really only going to recommend the first one. And it's basically this giant tin can of an interstellar ship and traveling at well uh, sublight speeds passes through our solar system. And in its brief transit from who knows where to who knows where, uh, American, well, a team of astronauts lands on it and explores it briefly. And we watch this thing go through a spring as it approaches our sun, go through a whole spring cycle, and then head back into its winter as it leaves again. And not a lot is ever explained. The later books make the mistake of explaining, which sucks all the mystery and wonder out of it. Huh. In my opinion, that was a mistake. But Tucson is like that. When it rains, in, in a single, like in four hours, it goes from a desert to lush. And then in another four hours, it'll go back to being desert again. And you, almost can actually watch the flowers open up and the leaves grow and things like well, that. Well, there's a plant called the resurrection plant. Yeah. Right? And you can literally pour water from your canteen on this plant and it will turn from what appears to be lifeless, desiccated, you know, moss to a lush life form. I remember as a kid, we'd uh, stay up at night to watch the night blooming cereus, a plant that blooms at midnight in order to attract uh, a cactus, by the way to attract bat pollinators. Bat pollinators are big in uh, Tucson, by the way. Yeah. Uh, jimson weed, Datura, is a classic plant which is pollinated by bats. Yeah. But I believe there are some cacti also that are specialized on, on bat pollination. Yep. yep. Yeah, so we have that in common. And you ended up, how'd you end up in the Navy? <laughs> um, my family was quite poor. I got poorer after I left home. And it's, there was a point at which that was how I got out of that hole. And it bought me my college degree. And so, Navy, thank you very much. I honestly feel like I probably owe more than I got from the Navy. Yeah. What years were you in the Navy? Um, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And you say that's how you got into 
college and how you your ticket into yeah. higher education? Yeah, the old GI Bill. They bought right. me my undergraduate degree and started me in medical school. So did you have any idea as a youngster that you might end up going into medicine? No, I was an art major in college, okay. actually. Um, I was going to do scientific illustration. And so I studied all the science classes I could so that I'd be a better illustrator, not for the purpose of going into a science career right. uh, directly. And wound up accidentally qualified for medical school. I hadn't, been, I hadn't even given it a thought. I remember we did have an art major in my medical school class, and I always tell people, don't take biochemistry or anatomy and physiology as an undergraduate. You have, you'll have time to do that in medical school. Learn something different. <laughs> Maximize you know, the, the time you have in the education system to, to get a diversity of experiences. I agree. I think that's really good advice. Bringing some right brain uh, training into medical school is a good idea because it's a very left brain discipline, which brings us full circle back to educational philosophy. One of the things I hope we touch on today is sort of how sciencey to be about it, because that's turned out to be more controversial than I expected. But I regard, personally, medicine as an extremely um, left brain. By the way, right brain and left brain are wildly exaggerated uh, concepts. I'm using them here as a metaphor. But logical, rational, linear, I like my science crunchy with data kind of approach to medicine. Mm -hmm. So where did you go to art school? Uh, started in Long Beach, California and finished at uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. Was it Cal State Long Beach? Yeah. Okay. It's a good school. They yeah. Have, they yeah have, it was a great school. They have a blues festival that's on, on campus there. It's a beautiful campus, too, <laughs> or at least it was back then. Yeah, I think it still is. And then after art school? I went straight into medical school. As I say, I wound up sort of accidentally qualified, so I applied, assuming that they would laugh and reject me, but they didn't. But what, what prompted that thinking? How did you go from art school into medicine? So I had, a, I had an accidental advantage in art school. Nobody cares about your grades. Nobody anywhere asks any artist, what grades did you get? They just want to look at your portfolio. They just want to see your work. Right, and so right now I'm looking around. I'm looking around Coffee's office, looking for any evidence of his uh, yeah. this artistic past. No, I don't think I have anything. He's wildly creative. There's amazing. Uh, there is art in the office here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, I never ever studied for grades. I always studied out of interest. I worked really hard, but I did it in order to gain confidence. I didn't even know what my grades were. I went down one time to pay for my tuition, and they said, you don't owe us anything. And I thought I had been kicked out of school. Hmm. It was that I was on the dean's list, and they covered my tuition for me, and oh, I wow. wasn't even aware of it. That's really cool. Yeah. So um, I, when I graduated, I had a 4.0 by accident, because I was interested, which really led to the core of my teaching philosophy, which is that interest trumps um, obligation. It's way better to study out of personal interest than it is because somebody is watching you and grading you. I think but you're it's hard to communicate. Something. Really hard to communicate. So um, I was lucky in the same way. So yeah. I didn't have as different or unconventional as a as a undergraduate education as you did, Coffee, because I studied biology. But I wasn't pre med. Okay. I, so I took classes I wanted to take. I took coral reef biology. I took ornithology. I took botany. Uh, California botany. I took biology of the Channel Islands. I took anthropology classes. And I took environmental studies classes. I took history classes. Not all because they were interesting to me. 
And as a result of being interested in those classes, I naturally did well. Now, that makes me want to ask you a question I've been thinking a lot about. There's a big push to get students in and through and out. Instead of being a restaurant where you savor every dish, universities become like fast food places. Eat and get the hell out. Um, the idea is to graduate as many as possible in four or five years. The ratio of student debt to future earnings is not as favorable as it was when I went through or when you went through, but it's still favorable. It's still, uh, I, in I still endorse it as, well, if you graduate mm -hmm. in some reasonable period of time, then it's still favorable. I think a right. lot of the student debt crisis we have is people who sample college and don't finish. So they have all the debt, but none of the benefit, none of the economic benefit. Where I'm going with this is, we're actually discouraging, actively discouraging students from taking classes to explore because that slows down their progress and costs them more intuition. But I think you that's a shame. described, and I certainly wallowed in, I have way more units in art than I do in science, but my degrees are chemistry, physics, and biology. Hmm. Hmm. So, okay. you know, I definitely wallowed it. So I it worked, savored it worked that for restaurant. You. And it, it worked for me, too. I'm not pitching that it works for everyone, but I hate to discourage it. So do you think that that idea, that trying to get students in and out, and maybe with a streamlined uh, educational process as possible, do you think that that is universal? Is that something that we're seeing in top flight universities as I well? I know it as because I've been reading about what other universities are okay. doing, what national trends are. Right. And this is a really, really marked national trend. Uh, perhaps smaller private colleges might be a little less Mm -hmm. prone to this. Yeah. And certainly wealthier families, uh, this would be a, a wealth disparity. Wealthier families can afford to let their kids play around in college for a bit before they figure out what they want to do. Yeah. One of the problems is if you're on this, this race through plan like the um, scholarship that we have here, you don't really have an opportunity to look around before you choose your major, which means we're having more people choose majors they're not going to be happy with, potentially than if we gave them time to try stuff. Yeah, now you mentioned wealth and sort of maybe the freedom to explore in college. What did your parents think about you going and learning about art in college? It wasn't on their dime, I was working, I was supporting myself. But did they weigh in and give you any feedback? Yeah, they said you're on your own kid, we're saving our money for the others. All right. <laughs> Literally, that's actually word for word what they said. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky in that I definitely got some parental support during college. I had I had jobs, so I worked during college, but the majority of you know tuition, et cetera, was was paid for, so I had that luxury. No, um, however, my wife and I were already married by that time, and us, we took turns sometimes pulling more hours to help the other one, but both of us were full-time students and full-time workers all the way through college. And where did you end up going to medical school? Also, University of Arizona. What about you? Well, I went to UCLA, and interestingly, uh, I was talking to both some pre-med students as well as a medical student yesterday who came to shadow during my shift. And I mentioned that even though I was from Arizona, the University of Arizona Medical School didn't interview me. They didn't offer me an interview. <laughs> so I was- Well, that was their loss, wasn't I was, I was in state in, at Arizona and I assumed they were gonna give me an interview uh, and they didn't. And they said, rightly, that I didn't have enough clinical experience because I wasn't pre-med I hadn't planned on going to medical school. I hadn't put in the hundreds of thousands of hours of volunteering and clinical experience that many students do these days. And they said, no, 
and it worked out. It worked out in my favor because UCLA said yes. Now that's um, a generational change because at the time that I went through, they preferred to write on a blank slate. I actually did have clinical experience. I had done several years of volunteer work in emergency rooms, and the irony is, and by the way, if anybody remembers me and you're listening, here's where you get closure. The irony is they kept saying, well, of course you're doing this to get into medical school. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm not interested in medical school. And look where I wound up. Yeah. So, but I had no idea while I was doing those volunteer hours that I would, was ever going to apply to medical school. So what made you want to volunteer in the emergency department? I wanted to volunteer. I believe yeah. in that sort of thing. And it seemed interesting to me. So I was selfish enough to volunteer in a place that was interesting to me. That works. Yeah, I think that it's, it is confusing for people working in the emergency department because we, we expect that every student and volunteer that comes through does want to go to medical school, and of course that's not the case. And I didn't see it as helping my illustration career either. It just seemed to me like an interesting way to give back. Well, I told you my parents pimped me out as a tutor. Another thing they pimped me out as was a bag of blood. So they used to, um, they were on this call list, and when the local hospital needed blood emergently, they would just send me down there. And this started when I was 15 or 16. And did they pay for blood? No, they just sent me down to the hospital to donate so, blood. So that was, but that was a volunteer sort of thing? Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, regarding education, I want to circle back to that because I really feel it's harmful for education to be either over or under appreciative of the vocational component. If we don't prepare people professionally to go out and actually work in the workplace and earn a living, then that contributes to the debt crisis and it's unfair to the students and so forth. But if we're nothing but a glorified uh, vocational school, we lose one of the great values that universities have always had. Universities originally did not start as vocational schools. They were a place where you learned to think critically because in those days, you had high leverage positions in society. It is still the case that with a degree, you have more leverage on average in society than without a degree. And so teaching people to think critically, to be aware, to see through the bullshit, um, to not use the web as a tool of misinformation, but to actually use it to become informed, to be thinking and to be true critical thinkers, I don't want us to lose that. And by the way, I think that the liberal arts, remember I started in liberal arts, um, are actually as important to that as the um, STEM classes are. I'm a hyper-STEM person now. That's Everybody who knows me reads me that way. So science, but that's not who I am deep down. Science, technology, engineering, and math? Yes, yes. Uh, and a lot of people... Now, one thing that's happened is everybody's sort of jealous of STEM, so they've begun adding things. I would put STEAM, medicine right? under M. STEAM includes A for arts. A for arts, yeah. And, and you know... If you make a word so broad that it no longer excludes anything, then it becomes a meaningless word. And it's interesting that you brought up uh, medical il illustration. Readers of the blog might note that the illustrator on, on my blog, evolutionmedicine.com, is Monica Aisa Martinez, and she is in Phoenix. She has some New Mexico roots also, but of course I like her medical illustrations and the way that she brings concepts and art and science together in a really creative way. Monica, you're living my dream. She's amazing. So, Monica, we're going to get you on the podcast at some point if you're listening. Though I cannot complain. I mean, I think I'd have been, I think I'd have loved being a medical illustrator or a scientific illustrator. I hadn't narrowed it down to medicine at that point. So did but, you have any people that were role models to you in that way? What did you think of Netter? 
I, I love Frank Netter's work, but um, I was originally inspired by the pen and ink work in Gray's Anatomy, and I tended to do mostly pen and ink work and um, uh, graphite. Yeah, so the pen and ink work in Gray's Anatomy, it's, uh, it's a little austere, isn't it? I didn't find it so. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it's not, so Frank Netter is, uh, his work is full of color and... Um, I find it's it a bit soft-edged and pastel. Yeah. I like okay. the crispness okay. of pen and ink myself. Right. And I really, for me, art wasn't... Um, I didn't approach art like an artist. For me, it was about a kind of exploration of form mm -hmm. uh, rather than an expression of emotions. And certainly, I've never had the tiniest urge to express my inner self through art. I'm not interested in showing you my inner self. He's got his own little cell he lives in. Right. <laughs> And so pe for people who don't know, Frank Netter wrote a whole series of medical illustrations, mostly on anatomy. So he's famous for his anatomy books, and that was what I used in medical school. Pathology, too. That's what, yeah. yeah, pathology. That's what my wife used. But there's a whole series of uh, organ systems and pathophysiology of disease uh, that he has illustrated. And we have several of his books, although not all of them. There's he's a, a brilliant communicator. He was very prolific. Uh, his work, you can easily look up his work online, Frank Netter Illustrations, N-E-T-T-E-R. And um, not only was his work helpful for medical students in learning, but it's helpful to teach patients because he communicates so clearly. So I, I wasn't at all dissing Frank Netter's work. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. It was just different than what I like doing. And we're going to get to more of the educational philosophy here in a moment, but I, I'm interested in how, again, how your art education informed or made you different and how you approached your medical education when you were going through medical school and residency? Well, I'm hypervisual. My slide sets are extremely packed with diagrams, not made by me, but just that I steal from everywhere I can. Um, I like to point at things on images while I'm talking. And I absolutely love, I just, to relax, I'll just sit down and look at diagrams of like mechanisms or pathophysiology or like where the electron goes in a, in a series of chemical equations. I just like following diagrams through. I enjoy diagrams. They, they make my brain feel good. But what's ironic is I go out and I collect the very best diagrams I can find anywhere. Mm -hmm. But what students really like, and the Khan Academy has figured this out, is they just love it when I draw on the whiteboard. Even though nowadays my drawings are pretty crude and rapid, when I talk and draw at the same time is usually what students seem to enjoy the most. You know, I, I should do more of that. In my teaching, I actually love using the whiteboard also. It's, it engages different parts of your brain, and I think it makes the, the experience better for students, too. And I think what happens is that the drawing acts as a series of visual notes about what we've talked about so far. But because it's being completed as I'm talking, they're not distracted by parts of the drawing we haven't addressed yet. Yeah. I think that may be why they prefer the whiteboard over the uh, gorgeous diagrams. Yeah, in a way, it also commands their attention. They have to pay attention to what's going on. Mm -hmm. They can't zone out and look at their iPhone. Oh, uh, they sometimes do, but, well, so here's another teaching. So I'm going to share with you a tip that has worked very well for me, although I'll warn you students <laughs> often don't like it, but it definitely improves their performance. And that is, I have this deck of laminated cards with the student's name on them. In fact, two cards per student that I shuffle constantly, and I just draw from the deck. What happened was, after the first couple of years, you know, I always solicit, I would ask my, do my own surveys. And some students were saying, I felt like I got left out too much, that certain students are getting all the attention. And part of my mind was thinking, that's what you get for being a wallflower. 
but you can't be a wallflower in EMS. You've got to be a step-up person. So I started using these cards. Now everybody knows they can be called on randomly, and it's amazing how often their name will come up twice in a row. Mm. Plus, I keep um, shuffling the cards. So there are no safe moments in my classroom. If you drift, you're going to get called on and you're going to get outed. And so to avoid embarrassment, uh, people stay tuned in. So it creates a consequence for tuning out. Yeah. I, I like that strategy. It also suggests that there's a upper limit to how big your classes can be. Well, mine run around 30. Um, I could no, I could do it. It would scale up. Uh, we'll talk about scaling in a second. But yes, this, this particular technique would scale up nicely. It also has the advantage that I can't, uh, I can't single a student out, even if I wanted to. I can't either uh, suppress a student's input or over-solicit a student's input. So there's no room for me to have pets or grudges because it's a randomized system. So then do you grade students on participation? No, I let embarrassment take care of that for right. me. I think the failing in front of your peers is a much bigger spanking for them than my grading them would be. Again, circling back a little bit, how did you end up here at the University of New Mexico? When it was time to look for residency, I went and looked at a lot of different uh, emergency medicine residencies. As now, they were very competitive. They were difficult to get. And I really, really liked the residency here, which was right at its beginning. In fact, I was in the second class. The second but class. But I could already see the kinds of things Dave Sklar was bringing to the residency, and also Paul Roth, who's now our dean, right. the yes. chancellor of the medical school. Dave Sklar was chair of the department for many years. Yeah, when, back when I was a resident, he was yeah. also chair. And I was so impressed by what they were doing and by the caliber of their first class that I really, really wanted to come here, which meant that I was sure I wasn't going to wind up here, but they took me for whatever reason. Yeah, I feel the same way. We're lucky. Yeah, very lucky. So what has made you stick around? I like the people. I like the weather. Um, mostly the people. I really like New Mexico. For listeners outside of New Mexico, we do have a little inside joke here, which is that New Mexico, the tagline or motto of the state is the land of enchantment. But sometimes that gets amended to the land of entrapment. Entrapment, yeah. So I didn't intend to spend my life and career here necessarily after residency. But, of course, I have. And that's true for a lot of folks. Well, the terrain here is beautiful uh, in an austere way. The mix of Hispanic, Native American, and Anglo culture is very appealing to me. And we also have a strong Vietnamese uh, current here. And so that diversity is exciting and interesting to me. Right. Yeah, the human landscape, the human part of the landscape is fascinating in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. I feel lucky to, to be here. Native American culture, which I'm not as close to as I'd like to be, my contacts with it have all felt profound to me. I've worked with a number of Native Americans and enjoyed their friendship, and it's deep. It's really deep. I'd like to know quite a lot more about it. And at, at, so UNM has two campuses, one here in Albuquerque, but then there's another uh, campus in Rio Rancho, where we have a more of a community hospital, and that's where I'm going to go, be going to work later on this afternoon. It's called Sandoval Regional Medical Center, and it's in Rio Rancho. But that hospital is the closest medical facility to a large number of pueblos to the west and north of us. As a proportion of our patient population, we get a very, very large native group of folks that come and seek care at, at our hospital. Um, and we see things that I think other people would never see, like injuries during feast days. Uh, it's just cool stuff. It's great to be exposed to that part of the culture. Yeah, sometimes you have to take a soap of pee out of somebody's ear. 
Right. So, you know, hey, every culture has their their uh, their fried dough. It's from the Native American perspective. So a sopapilla is the Hispanic version. Of course, Indian fry bread is what um, Native Americans ha have eaten. But that has its roots in um, sort of the United States Indian policy of the 1800s in which some food staples were sent to uh, forts and outposts more, more or less as a way to uh, kind of gain control of some of the Native American population. Some people argue that that, that history of essentially promoting what are basically unhealthy foods has led to some of our Native uh, populations having an obesity and diabetes epidemic. I think that the idea was not so much that it was unhealthy, because I'm not sure they would have known that then, but that they were creating a dependency yeah. on uh, imported uh, flour. I think you're right. Um, but it was absolutely a weapon. Yeah. Having that said that, pretty unambiguous. You know, I like Indian fry bread. I like sopapillas. It's basically a donut. Yeah. And then there were stuffed sopapillas. But we're getting we're getting off track here. Let's circle back to uh, educational philosophy. Who were who were people that influenced you? Uh, well, John Hattie has done a lot of research on um, the effect size of different educational interventions. Um, Vygotsky is a big influence now, but his theories about social learning look to me like repackagings of prior theories. The, the whole idea of scaffolding, the whole idea that you build on, on a foundation, that goes all the way back to Socrates. Oh, Socratic method is a big deal to me, actually. Uh, I'm a big believer in the Socratic method, so that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks. So that involves uh, asking people questions and finding out where knowledge gaps are? Asking leading questions, and it does a number of things. It causes people to think about multiple possibilities. It makes people want to perform in a way that they don't when they're by themselves asking themselves questions. They have somebody watching them, waiting for an answer. And so they tend to uh, parse the question and the answer more carefully than they might otherwise. And it gives people a feeling of achievement. Famously, Socrates is said to have badgered some poor slave into deriving Pythagoras' theorem. And he believed, and I think this is literally what he believed, that we were born with all this knowledge in us, but it's suppressed by an overlay of learning and culture, and he was unmasking it. That is not what we now believe. But when you lead people to derive an answer through Socratic questioning, they experience the derivation of that answer for themselves, and it is still empowering. So I don't think it's just a trick to make them feel like they've accomplished something. I think they actually do the work. You just nudge them to help them work more productively. Right. So the Socratic method is famous for attending physicians, pimping, there's that word again, Yeah. Uh, pimping students on rounds, asking questions and finding out where, where gaps in knowledge are. Some people argue that it, it's too stressful for students. I'm glad you brought that up. In fact, um, there's been a lot of discussion around that lately. So I think it's important to realize that there's Socratic questioning and then again there's Socratic questioning. When people are put on the spot and made to feel ashamed or inferior if they can't answer the question, then it can become threatening. And teaching education has always had a threatening component, including physical punishment, corporal punishment in the Catholic schools where I went as a child. That's actually not as effective as everybody thinks. The reason we think it's effective is that a painful experience is something we'll remember forever, but you can't do it consistently. You can do that once in a while, but if you keep doing it over time, we actually become poorer learners, not better learners. Yeah. So that's something you really have to hold in reserve. A punishing approach to education 
is a is an illusion that fails us all. We should talk about the fluency illusion as well, by the way. That's another one that hurts okay. us. Okay, well, we'll get to that. But I wanted to say that I have I've become aware that, yeah, we can use the Socratic method in a way which can tend towards being not abusive, uh, we'll just say um, not effective at times. And I've, I've dialed it back a little bit. Or, yeah. I'll, or I'll, I'll pose the question and then immediately give the answer and then ask the students what else that they can add to that. One of my favorite chief residents, and if I could remember his name, I'd mention it now by way of thanks. He was a, in pediatrics. I was in emergency medicine. He would ask the questions, and he would congratulate us when we could answer them. And then we'd stop and discuss it if one of us couldn't answer the question. And somebody asked him why he was so different than the other residents, because it was really like drill sergeants back in those days. Mm -hmm. In fact, threats of physical violence were just routine on rounds back in those days. And he said, well, whenever you can answer the question, you get a win, and that builds your confidence, and that's good for you as a doctor. But whenever you can't answer a question, now we have today's topic. We have something to talk about that I know will be productive. I have tried to retain that attitude in my approach to Socratic questioning. What a great so lesson. a win is a win, but a lot, but a miss is also a win because now we have a topic. Right. Yeah, you mentioned the drill sergeant analogy. Do you, did you see any other uh, similarities between your military experience and your medical education? Oh yes, uh, the medical education was drastically more butch. Um, in in uh, boot camp, the worst I ever had to do was push-ups. In uh, my medical rounds, I have heard, I have literally heard a female resident threatened an intern that she would rip his balls off with a claw hammer if he made another mistake. Wow. Yeah, and that kind of thing I don't think you'd see now, but just to give you an idea of how these different approaches to training change over time. Now this particular person was sadistic in multiple ways, but that level of threat and coercion was pretty routine. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem to be a, a certain one-upsmanship and uh, sometimes shaming that occurs in interactions in academic medical centers. I don't think that University of New Mexico has this, has a problem. In fact, I think that we're probably better off than many other places. But I think it is a feature of medical education that sometimes the education itself can be counterproductive. If I thought threats and shaming worked, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I would use them, but I would at least consider their use justifiable. They don't work. They clearly don't work. And we know that from animal training. Animal trainers who beat their animals ultimately get killed by them, right. and rightly so. Um, if you look at the people who can teach lions and tigers and bears to be safe in the ring, it's the kind ones. It's not the cruel ones. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, when um, Siegfried and Roy, when one of them got attacked by the tiger, both of them, their first concern was that the tiger not be euthanized. Yeah. Whether or not it would be morally justifiable if it were effective doesn't even come up because it's not effective. Cruelty isn't the way to teach. Agreed. That doesn't mean don't be demanding. In fact, I know, I know that I'm regarded as highly demanding, but I hope that I am not a cruel person. Well, I don't think that you are. Um, so th as far as medical hierarchies go and some of the ways in which the Socratic method can be abusive, uh, I think that we are more attuned to these things and medical education is changing over time and I think in, in ways that are really better. What are some other ways that you think that things have improved over the years? Well, I think the flipped classroom is a good move. So the, in the flipped classroom, there's less lecture 
and people do their homework in class. They read outside of class. For far too long, classrooms have been treated as data dumps. And by the way, I'm not as free of this as I'd like to be. So I'm preaching a little more um, uh, completely than I practice. But the classroom shouldn't be a data dump. You could watch a video. You can read a book. There's tons of stuff online. There's actually medical school online. You do not need a lecturer in the classroom for your data. What you need is to work through problems in the classroom where the lecturer can mediate, can listen to what's being said, and recognize when things have been mislearned or misinterpreted or misapplied and help get people back onto the right track. Or to be available to discuss the things they couldn't work out for themselves from all these other resources because they're tricky in some way. Yeah. So I think that there always has been a component of this. You know, in uh, undergraduate class, you might be assigned a reading uh, that would relate to a lecture topic or something like that. But the idea that, we, that there's a whole bunch of prep work that you can do, in fact, even listening to a lecture online or watching a video or hearing a podcast, these are all things that we can incorporate into our teaching. I have a student right now who's finishing up her elective in evolution, evolutionary medicine, and she is really good at this. And she comes to our sessions super well prepared. And she knows some of the arguments and she's able to really engage in a high level discussion. So I think that the students themselves have really benefited from some exposure to this, this flipped classroom idea. Yeah, the class can go much further when people come in prepared. So I do quizzes every Monday in order to oblige people to read over the weekend so that we actually can talk from a point of having done a little prep work when we hit the classroom. Also, the students design the lecture every day. I don't come in with a prepared lecture. I have this big, huge slide set, mm -hmm. hundreds of slides, but I don't do most of it. What I do is I have them write on the board which are the objectives they struggled with over the weekend, which are the ones they don't feel confident about now. And then I work from the board. Sometimes I resort to the slides, to, so I have diagrams and things like that. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I use the whiteboard or just talk walking around the room and a lot of the time, as much as I can, I have them do more of the talking by doing the Socratic questioning. So we work through the objectives they found difficult. If I talk about things they don't find difficult, they're going to get bored and tune out. And I may not have time left to get to the things they really needed covered. Sure. Now you mentioned uh, data dump, and this is kind of the bugaboo of medical education for many, many years. The idea that there's this massive quantity of knowledge uh, books full of facts that a successful medical student has to negotiate and memorize. And this absolutely was a feature of my medical education, uh, even though they were trying to get away from that a bit when I went to UCLA. But you may remember this also, that the students who were considered smart were the ones that could just spit back a fact. Had factory. great memories. Had a great yeah. memory. So that was what equated to a, a student being praised for being smart, even though it had nothing to do with decision making or clinical reasoning. So as an educator, I think about students the way I think about laptops. When you go down and buy a new laptop, do you want a large hard drive or do you want a powerful CPU? Both. Yes, exactly. The answer is yes. So yeah, you got to be good at memorization, but no, that's not the same as having a good CPU. You need both and they're separate components that you have to work on separately. And I would say that over time, the uh, memorization part becomes less and less important because one, there is an increasing density of facts that one needs to know, uh, but we've been able to outsource a lot of that to, we have another CPU with us. We can look things up. We have the internet with us. Every student has a device that they carry with them. So I'm interested in, 
you may feel differently about some of this. I'm interested in your take on what I'm about to say. Um, I sort of divide... So medical schools are getting the hang of this, by the way. They're not making people memorize a lot of the stuff we used to memorize. Instead, they want them to know what to go look up at a given time. So I divide the information into three broad categories, one way of dividing it. One is you really got to know this stuff. This is stuff you have to have memorized. Common drugs, normal vital signs, and I would say differential diagnosis, uh, dif like differentials for common or critical presentations. The second group is stuff you have to have memorized at some time even though you won't remember it years later. So like I'm really good at cranial nerves right now because I teach it every year. <laughs> but I bet you'd struggle a little bit to name all the cranial nerves. I'd have a hard time. Right. But the fact that you learned them once means you know what to go and look at if you need to know something about cranial nerves. Yeah. So you have to have learned them at some point even though they're not going to be resident in your immediately available memory probably many years later. Right. And then there are things that it's a waste of time to ever memorize but you need to have understood the concept at some point so you know what to go and look up when you need to go and look it up. And I think that that's basically right. And part of going to medical school and getting this sort of education is that you learn to speak a language, right? Mm -hmm. And physicians in North America and New Mexico, well, we can talk to physicians that were trained in you know, Toronto, Canada, the UK. Uh, we can talk to physicians trained in South Africa. Uh, anywhere in the world and there will be a common language that we that we have and an exposure to a certain number of facts that is common in all of us that allows us to uh, collaborate and sometimes take you know take care of patients together despite having different backgrounds incidentally if you ever get into a plane with a pilot even a small plane like I went flying with a <coughs> one of our former chairman of one of my departments um, went flying with him one time and this was a light plane like a Piper Club we could have picked it up and walked off with it Still, he went through a checklist of every single switch and every single control and stuff and had me check him uh, all the way down before we took off. We would regard any pilot who didn't do that as grossly incompetent. Yet, when a doctor looks at a checklist, we regard that as a mistake. I'm with Atul Gawande on this. We should develop a culture where a doc who doesn't look at a checklist, give, if he has time, in our world we sometimes don't, but a doctor who doesn't look at a checklist before, say, a central line or anesthesia or something like that, ought to be regarded as incompetent by everybody around them in what I would envision as a safer, better environment. You know, as a, as just a, to play the devil's advocate here, uh, Vinay Prasad, who has a podcast that I listen to, it's, it's called Plenary Session, and I recommend it to listeners of, of this podcast. He has a kind of a similar outlook in terms of being hyper-skeptical of things. Uh, he thinks that Atul Gawande more or less has leveraged his celebrity to push this checklist idea in ways kind of even beyond its actual utility. So he, th he thinks that, uh, like everything, um, things need to undergo rigorous testing and review to see whether they actually work. And I, certainly having a checklist works. I agree um, with that. But it, you know, there could be the confounder of, well, if you're just paying more attention to something, regardless of it being a checklist, uh, you may actually get the same result. Not a confounder. A checklist is a good way to make sure you're paying more attention. Yeah, so it may just be a, a way of doing that, sort of a hack. Where I came to this, actually, was all the way back when I was in medical school. So this is mm -hmm. long before Atul Gawande's book. Uh, there was a book called, um, I want to say To Air is Human, but that's the, um, the um, NSF report, right? Uh, Institute of Medicine. Yeah. Um, anyway, we, we were introduced to error reduction science when I was in medical school. And this was something 
everybody in safety engineering knows except in medicine. In every other area where safety engineering is important, everybody uses checklists except for us. So, I mean, this was old news before Gawande ever thought about writing his book. So no, this isn't a tool Gawande fetish. I would agree that, as with everything else, too much is too much, too little is too little, just right is just right. And we don't need checklists for every single thing we do. If things are relatively simple or the stakes are relatively low, or we do them constantly enough, that's a little iffier, we may not need checklists. But for things like central lines, uh, surgical procedures, prepping people for anesthesia, um, getting an MRI, you need a checklist. Using TPA, you got to go through the checklist, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna push too hard back on that one. Yeah. So it it depends on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Should we use a checklist for suturing, to remind ourselves to do you know thorough cleaning and, you know. If you're going to use betadine, clean it all off. And a lot of people don't like betadine anymore. But you take my point. Yeah. Um, I would argue we do that often enough. It's simple enough, and the stakes are low enough that I'm okay with not using a checklist for that. But it's right in the gray zone for me because there are a bunch of steps in proper wound care. Right. So yeah. But of course, I would argue that you can find some analogies that where the the pilot checklist might be able to be employed in say a pre-surgical or pre-airway intervention. Kind of Airway intervention, yeah. Kind of thing in, in, uh, in our specialty of emergency medicine. But there's lots of what we do that are they're simply just unlike uh, flying a plane. Well, speed, for example. You know, when you're flying a plane, you can take a little time before you take off. But we often have to take off, boom, just right now, you know. More than once, I've walked out of the parking lot and had somebody hand me a bleeding patient, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, so there's that. And the fact that that patients are so different. And every every patient presentation, they, they didn't necessarily read the textbook. And you those critical thinking skills end up being more important than just going through a whole series of, uh, oh. you know, those pre-specified I take actions. your point. Um, I definitely agree that a checklist and critical thinking, well, it's funny because this is actually part of my teaching philosophy. So a checklist, does imply that it can replace critical thinking. No, I wouldn't go there. Um, I'd be more like a checklist of decision points uh, for a lot of things. But when I came to work here at the EMS Academy, the idea was that you taught people a bunch of protocols. And right. that is not what I do. I teach them how to think through the problem. And That's good. that freaked everybody out for a while. But actually, our failure rate has gone down and our competency rates have gone way up. Fantastic. So, um, now, that's not controversial anymore, but it was when I came here. Yeah, so there is, the, there is this push also, along with checklists, to follow treatment algorithms and treatment protocols. So when you're training medics, you know, paramedics and uh, EMS <coughs> specialists are out there in the field, uh, there are protocols they have to follow. There are things that, that fall within their scope of practice and things that don't, so they need to know that at a very minimum. And they need to know, as you're teaching them, how to recognize various syndromes of disease and how to intervene. Um, but I, you know, I think that we physicians do need to pay close attention to the space and mm. we need to push back when pushback is appropriate. We don't want to be a cog in a machine, to be a completely replaceable widget that anybody can just step in and then follow a protocol or an algorithm and take care of patients in the same way. So-called cookie cutter medicine. Yeah, right. I think that that's, I think that's a problem. 
And you know, much of what, in terms of what I teach my students, in fact, something that I emphasized yesterday, and I've brought up uh, Vinay Prasad already in this podcast, but we went over his decade of medical reversal and we went through all the publications that were published in the New England Journal that were subsequently found to be false. And we changed our, our practice in 180 degrees. And I think this is a really, really good lesson for students. So they can't simply learn a protocol and think that that's going to serve them well throughout their careers. They need to be able to assess the primary literature and they need to have a healthy skepticism that even if they read something that has the gold standard level of evidence in a randomized controlled trial, there's a decent chance that a subsequent trial might overturn it. So there's mm -hmm. a whole way of approaching the science of medicine and a way of approaching information and bringing that knowledge to bear, which falls way outside of memorizing lists and memorizing factoids and learning algorithms and learning protocols. And so that's what I try to teach my students. Yeah, I don't think we're in disagreement. I came from a specialty, medicine, where we seem to feel like we have to reinvent the wheel for everything, no matter how simple, on every patient, mm -hmm. which I think is excessive. We ought to have sort of templates that we deviate from thoughtfully. Right. Um, and I came to a specialty, uh, EMS, where everything was supposed to be done by using cookbooks and cards. And what I'm advocating for is a space in between. I think you should always have, there should be sort of templates for how to approach at least common problems, well worked out problems. Mm -hmm. But a thoughtful person knows when to violate that template or when he's looking at an exception to the template. Uh, at the same time, I think EMS does need guidelines that let them have an idea of how to approach every patient, but I put a heavy emphasis on looking for reasons why this template doesn't fit that patient. So I focus on exceptions quite a lot in my yeah. uh, approach. So, so the reality, I think, is that both are important. Yep. Right? We need to have a healthy skepticism about protocols and algorithms, and yet it shouldn't be the case, as is too often the case, that let's say a patient with a given set of complaints and a given problem goes to Dr. A, Dr. B, and Dr. C and gets worked up and treated in entirely different ways. Which is what's that's, happening. That's yeah. not ideal either. Yeah. And that suggests there's, there's a problem in terms of how we engage in this process of medicine and apply it to populations. We, wouldn't, we, would, we don't want there to be huge variation in terms of how patients uh, are treated by different people in different places, and yet that is exactly what happens. And we can you can just look at any given variable, like how many times a patient with a fracture is going to get prescribed opioids versus non-opioid pain medicine, and for how long and how many pills. So these are these are things where we don't want there to be massive variation because that can lead to bad outcomes in, in various places, and we want to bring evidence to bear. Now here's an interesting paradox. I thought for a long time that we need an actual standard of care, an actual guidebook that says, for this presentation, do these things, and you've covered the minimum. You've hit standard of care. Whatever right. else happens, you didn't fall below standard of care. The problem is, if we had such a recipe book, it would, instead of becoming a floor, it would become a ceiling, because insurers would demand that we not do more than that book required either. And yeah, so it gets complicated really fast. You wouldn't be a good physician if you simply work to the floor, right? Yeah, so there are all these stakeholders, and unfortunately we live in a system in which the insurance companies do have a say in what we do. I, it's a whole nother, we should talk another time about the relative, what insurers bring to the table, what are some alternative ways of delivering healthcare. It's too big of a topic to get into here today, but it's a great topic. Okay, well just maybe really briefly, I can think of 
And there's this whole concern about rationing of care. And uh, I remember, especially back when there was a movement to really emphasize health maintenance organizations, HMOs. This is, you know, this is in the late 90s, early 2000s. But there was a lot of pushback for some of these insurance-based HMOs. Uh, the concern was that, well, if you in, are in part of that health system, then you're not going to get useful treatments. Say, you're not going to get bone marrow transplants for, for given conditions like you know, breast cancer. Or you're not going to, the, the HMO is not going to cover uh, some very useful treatments. And isn't the insurance company bad and the HMO bad because they are rationing care? But in some cases, if you look back on, on some of those individual events, it was the insurance company that was following the evidence and not some of the pushback in terms of patient advocacy groups or individual physicians. Uh, so I agree with that. So that's just, there's, again, there's gonna be two sides to every coin. Let's do that, let's make that a top podcast topic. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, fluency bias is a, uh, sorry, fluency illusion is an important concept for educators to understand. When, um, oh, let's say a pitcher is practicing his fastball and so he throws the fastball over and over until he's hitting within the strike zone nine times out of ten and, and it's going really fast and things like that. He feels like he's getting better. And so then he switches and he works on his curveball until that's going really well. And then he works on whatever the others are. I don't follow baseball. But, you know, his, his corkscrew ball or whatever it is. <laughs> right? The problem is, well, the, what the research shows is that if he mixes them up, he's mixing up randomly fastballs and curveballs and sliders and all this stuff. He actually feels like he's doing worse. He never gets as good at any of them during mm. his practice session. This is the problem with being an emergency physician, by the way. But on game day, he's actually better. No, we actually benefit from this. Okay. We don't do block practice. We do interleaved practice. We're mixing everything with everything all yeah, the time. Yeah, but we never, because, because our specialty is a jack of all trades, and we take care of all comers of all ages with all sorts of different problems and levels of, of acuity, uh, it's very hard to feel like you are expert in any one thing. Correct. You don't feel like it in the moment. Right. And we all sort of, I get that. But, and it hasn't been looked at with ER docs. It's been looked at in uh, various academic fields and various sports fields. Mixing up your practice, although you don't feel the same level of fluency during the practice that you would with block practice, where you do the same thing over and over, you actually perform better on game day. And, uh, and this is a pretty consistent finding across a wide range of domains, although, as I say, you and I, medicine hasn't been studied in quite this way. But we might expect that it would. Right. When students are in class in a lecture, they're listening to the lecture, and they're going, oh, yeah, that makes total sense to me. Oh, yeah, I totally get that. And you ask them a question, and then you quickly let them off the hook and give them the answer, and they're thinking, oh, I was totally going to say that. Or like you do an in-class quiz with everybody, maybe using eye clickers or something, and the answer is C instead to, of B, and they go, oh, I was totally going to say C. I don't even know why I picked B. I knew it was C. No, you didn't. No, you bloody well didn't. And when you're in class and you're feeling like you understand, until you actually try to work with the material, you don't realize what you didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so you, you feel like you're learning, but you're not actually learning in those moments. In fact, you're not even learning when I ask you a question and you can quickly give me the answer. You're only learning when you struggle to produce the answer. That struggle itself is the learning moment. And this was a big insight for me, a big turnaround in my thinking as an educator. By the way, when I talk about my philosophy of education, that's today. It evolves all the time, and it will next year as well, mm -hmm. just so you know. But at one time, I thought I wanted my students not... I was looking for ways to make it less effortful to get to the bar that I was trying to get them to. It turns out that effort 
Not that all effort is good. Some effort is really spinning your wheels. But learning is, in fact, effortful and inextricably effortful. That moment of effort is when the learning is actually happening. Not the moment of glibness and not the moment of failure, but the moment of effortful success. That's when learning happens. Very well said. Let me ask you this. So if those are some of the things that work, the things that you've learned over, over time, what are some things that you abandoned? Or what, what, are you, what are some mistakes that you see in education that you wish people wouldn't do? Um, lecturing to a quiet room, I don't think I would stay here if I had to lecture to a room full of 300 people. They should just watch a video. Yeah. Uh, so I think lecturing to a quiet room, um, not that is allowing people to do all their out-of-classroom work alone on their own. That's what every student wants to do. That's what I did. It's my strong personality preference. But it is not the best way to learn. And the reason is this. It happens that I have a horrible sense of direction, like to the point that it's probably like neurologic or something. <laughs> I can get lost in a phone booth, <laughs> all right? But I know how to get to my local store because I go there all the time. And I go there the same way all the time, and I never get lost going between my house and the store. But if they put roadblocks up and I have to figure out an alternate route, I'm likely to wander around local neighborhoods until I run out of food and starve and they'll find my skeleton behind the steering wheel eventually. That'd be a shame. But suppose I went to the store with someone different every time and they all have their own favorite routes to it. I'd know five or six ways to get to that store. If my way of going got blocked, I could still get to the store. If I want to solve a problem, I'm a good problem solver and I will solve it my way almost all the time. But if my way doesn't work, I may fail to solve the problem. But if I solve problems along with other people all the time, I'm going to watch them get through to the problem in a way I never would have imagined. They make associations I wouldn't have made. They use strategies I wouldn't have thought to use, and so on down the line. So that when my preferred way of solving a problem gets blocked, I've got a huge arsenal of alternate ways of getting at the problem I never would have if I didn't study with other people. So now, uh, study halls here are obligatory group study efforts where they work on problems together oh, wow. because they need that from each other and nobody believes they need that until they get stuck. Yeah. So one of my sayings is that medicine is a team sport. Yep. Even though it will sometimes feel like you're just making decisions on your own. Indeed, we're bouncing ideas off of each other. We're interacting with consultants and we're dealing with, with uh, ancillary staff, uh, nurses, mid-levels, advanced care pr practitioners, all sorts of different folks and that, I think, helps us get to a better place. Yeah, well, I do a lot of work with the Interprofessional Education Group, and of course they have a whole huge arsenal of solutions to problems that are I would never have thought of if I didn't meet them and hear that they have things for this and that. You know, before I met, before I saw my first fat-handled fork for somebody with arthritis, I wouldn't have thought that that was the fix for somebody who had trouble handling a fork because they have arthritis. I just would yeah, never have thought of that. Apparently there's some uh, a fork that actually controls for tremor and has some Oh, it has a stabilizer, like a gyroscope it. or something right. in it. Nice. Which is useful for some folks. What are some other things that you see people doing wrong? Um, well, as I say, uh, teaching from fear. So when I first came here, uh, it was sort of suggested to me that I needed to make students very aware of the risk of failure. There was a high failure rate before I started here. Yeah. Uh, there isn't throughout EMS, by the way. The failure rates as high as 50% are routine in EMS. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. So um, I used to emphasize that, but what it was doing was demoralizing the students. 
it turns out that emphasizing success is far more uh, effective than emphasizing failure. Right. And by the way, the same is so true in our world. are motivated by uh, fear of failing. The whole tort system, which is basically that you can make doctors better by scaring them, Mm-hmm. is not what a safety engineer would design, and it's not what an educator would design. It's only something a lawyer would design. Mm, fascinating. If you want to make medicine better, accountability is necessary. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely know that we would wander off track if we weren't accountable. But fear-based accountability is wrong. Also, tort is wrong because it means that the doctor has to be found at fault in order to help the patient. So a sympathetic patient strongly predisposes a jury to find the physician at fault. And an unsympathetic patient can work the other way. Those are two separate questions. Whether I made a mistake and whether this family is sympathetic and needs and deserves our help are two utterly unrelated questions, but we have conflated them because that's how tort law works. So when there is a patient who is harmed, you would like there to be a system that can remedy that for a patient. And I like the approach that they have in New Zealand in which there is a, and I probably will get this wrong if there's any Kiwi listeners out there, but there's a, a panel of you know, medical people, uh, other experts that can listen to a patient complaint and then um, adjudicate that, uh, make things right for that patient that doesn't involve legal liability for, uh, for physicians. There still is, as I understand it, you can still be sued for malpractice in New Zealand uh, but it doesn't happen very often, and there really has to be kind of some gross negligence or malice involved, uh, some some real harms that are were the uh, intended by the physician. Actually, our laws are written pretty reasonably, but they've become. But the way that they're operated, isn't very reasonable. So the writing of them is better than the operation of them, I would say. But even the way they're written, they conflate a patient outcome with physician competence, and those are actually two unrelated questions. A panel that looks and determines what the patient needs can also determine, huh, this is the fifth time this physician has had this problem. He needs remediation in this specific area of his practice. And of course, if it's more than a certain number of areas, we may need to relook at whether he should be licensed. Mm -hmm. I'm using he generic here, sorry, I'm an old guy. Uh, I should be switching my pronouns more often, and I apologize for that. I'm aware of the problem, but it's uh, a grammar habit. The other question I wanted to ask you, Coffee, was how did you end up uh, teaching full-time at the EMS Academy? What, what, what prompted that for you? Um, I took some time off from work, and because I had time, I came down and volunteered. I forget who connected us, but somebody said they, you know, would you mind going over and doing some lectures? They're they're missing a lecturer right now, and they have these holes to fill. I wasn't getting paid or anything. I would just put together the material and teach, and they asked me if I would pick up the job, and I said, well, yeah, sure. And I, I have to say, I love education as much as I do medicine, so it was a nice transition for me. Mm-hmm. And I really like the people in, in my department. Plus, the students are inspirational. You know... But was there, listen, was there any... Uh, angst, any, um, I guess, soul-searching when you decided to not to do less? Oh, yeah. Walking away from clinical work for me felt like divorcing someone I still love. Yeah. That you can love someone and and be incompatible in some way. And, you know, I was spending more time with charts than I was with patients. Um, The whole accountability through fear thing was starting to wear me down. Right. Um, And... It's hard to put my finger on it because I never stopped loving clinical work. 
I really, really love clinical work, and I feel so good when I can help patients. But yet I was becoming more and more unhappy. And uh, education uh, has always been a, also equally appealing to me, so it wasn't difficult to walk across the hall. Right. No, it's nice that we are in an academic center where there yeah. are all these teaching opportunities, and people really can do different things. I mean, I know among people that trained in my cohort, in my residency class, a few people in that group have gone on to become administrators and don't see patients anymore. I know others that have gone on to be inventors and do nonprofit work and do and de-emphasize some of the, the clinical work. Um, I like to juggle the clinical part of my job with the education and the research part of my job, uh, but that can be difficult after a while. But there are lots of folks that do at least transition out of being primarily uh, clinicians. So that, that is a nice thing about the academic world. Yeah, I had an average or slightly longer than average duration of career, but mm -hmm. I had expected it to be longer. I underestimated the effect of chronic uh, cortisol and adrenaline. It, it does fatigue you after a while. Yeah, so there's this myth. And I was they, working a lot of hours too. Yeah, and you said you also like to work nights. There's that circadian yeah, stress yeah. On, on, on one's body. There's this, this myth that people that go into EMS or emergency medicine are adrenaline junkies and that we thrive on adrenaline. That probably isn't true. There may be some people that like some of these high stakes situations, clinical situations, and like to be able to intervene appropriately. <laughs> Having that chronic burst of cortisol is probably not good for us. I actually never was drawn to it mm -hmm. uh, for excitement per se. Mm -hmm. I was drawn to uh, problem solving and outcomes. That's what, yeah. what the hook was for me. And the other piece of it is that in our specialty, people do like to be challenged and get bored easily. Yeah. And we like variety, at yeah. least I do. And that's one thing the job rewards us with in spades. Yeah, but it doesn't mean you like sleep deprivation or chronic stress. So some, sometimes you need to mix it up a little bit. I've been lucky in my career that I've done different things at different times. I really focus on uh, wilderness medicine, and then I transitioned into doing uh, more administrative work because I was chief of the department and that kind of freed up at least a little bit of space to, to do less clinical and to ultimately do more in terms of teaching and research and then I happily gave up the administrative hat and I have time to focus on teaching students and research in addition to taking care of patients. You're doing patient care this very day in fact That's you're right. probably almost out of time. I am looking at the clock. I will mention that throughout the time that I was doing my clinical work and so working closely with EMS I always felt that the challenge and the sophistication of EMS work was underestimated. And that was one of the reasons I was interested in teaching into this area, is I wanted to raise the preparation closer to what I think the demands of the job are. So I, I will just put in a plug here for Coffee's teaching, having sat in on some of his classes. Coffee is a master educator, and he brings this level of intellectual discovery to the classes. It's a very, very high level of uh, teaching and education that I think he, he brings to his students, and they're really lucky to have him. Thank you, I really appreciate that. But to your point, though, that uh, we don't think of paramedics as needing that level of education, clearly they thrive uh, when they are challenged in that way. And when you bring in all these different lines of evidence, pathophysiology, and your method of teaching that is engaging and challenges the students. You know, like a lot of things, we've talked about this before, I think, have either a U-shaped curve or they have a curve with a peak, a sweet spot. And 
the challenge productivity curve works like that. If you under-challenge people, they disengage, and if you over-challenge them, they decompensate. So finding that, that point of challenge where you get the maximum level of development takes some, some close attention. But here, raising the level of challenge decreased the level of failure, the attrition rate. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And that doesn't actually astonish me because people engaged more fully. They, they come over from main campus and they've never really had that level of challenge. And they've tended to be sort of disengaged in the classrooms. I think they like, in general, not every single individual, but in general, I think they like that higher level of engagement. Mm -hmm. So you were saying that up to 50% of students end up dropping out of the training program? Nationally, yeah. Nationally. No, no, not our program. So what, how about our program? Oh, well under 10%. Under 10? Yeah. That's great. Maybe 5%. Wow. Yeah. I was talking to my, my students yesterday, taking an elective in evolutionary medicine. We were discussing the demands on medical students and how they have to memorize all these facts. And I was criticizing that, which I think it deserves criticism, and making the argument that ev evolution and thinking about the ways in which our bodies evolved and the ways that the pathogens evolved and using some of those insights to guide education can be very, very useful. So you can take a whole bunch of disparate facts and you can put them on an intellectual scaffold that has this evolutionary biology at, at its base. And I would love to see a head-to-head -head contest between that, that method of teaching where we use evolutionary insights and a traditional fact-based education that, that doesn't. And I'm pretty confident that the evol evolutionary approach would actually win out. It has for me. Every year, one or two people give me feedback that they're uncomfortable with me teaching from an evolutionary perspective. In medicine, now I'm working with EMS, but in medical school as well, there are quite a lot of people who do not believe in evolution. I'm of the school that says you can't really disbelieve in evolution. Either you believe in it or you don't understand it. I mean, who doesn't think the kids look like their parents? Who doesn't think that you can breed animals to get specific attributes. Well, that's what Everybody Darwin used to sees evolution in real life all the time. We evolve fruit flies and mice to have special attributes in the laboratory. I mean, it's hard to imagine anything with more evidence supporting it than evolution. But I tell them at the beginning of every year, look, if you don't believe in evolution, I don't care. I promise you, and I've never broken this promise, I will not once all year long ask you, do you believe in evolution? I don't care. But as an explanatory model, it's almost universally accepted in our world. And that's where I come from. It's my background. It's what I teach from. And after all, if I didn't teach from evolution, I'd be reduced to saying, because it's like that, which doesn't seem like much of an explanation. And also, there's plenty of people in the room who do believe in evolution. Should I cheat them to make the others happy? So believe what you want to believe. I don't care. I won't ask you that but give me room to believe what I want to believe and teach from my background. Yeah, and I think that I've certainly had students who come from different religious traditions in my classes, some of whom perhaps had difficulty accepting uh, some of these evolutionary ideas. Having said that, I, all, I agree with you. I don't want to, not, it's not my job to hammer them over the head with, with, with evolution and say, hey, well, you must therefore disbelieve some of your the ideas that you came into right. my class with. Um, what I asked them to, to do, though, is almost approach it like a game. To think, well, if, if these sets of things are true, then we would expect to see X, Y, and Z. And to approach it just from a logical uh, perspective. 
and I think that they're able to do it. So I kind of gamify. The, Me too. The I encourage them to think of it as an explanatory model. Right. And I don't really give a damn whether they think it's true or not. It doesn't matter. It's still a great explanatory model. And as a great explanatory model, as I was telling my student yesterday, it has great predictive value. Mm -hmm. So you can predict things that still need to be empirically tested, but it can narrow um, a research avenue in a way which is more fruitful, and it can also make it easier to learn and apprehend knowledge that are important, that's important for our patients. So super important. I think that's a strategy that works. All that said, I do definitely understand physiology from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, meaning, not that I have anything like your depth of understanding of evolution, but what I mean by that is, that is the scaffold on which I hang all my uh, understandings. Well, I'm looking at the clock again, and I think it is time for me to start heading out to work. Thanks and so yeah. much. Really enjoyed yeah. this. Thanks, Copy.